Welcome to Redeeming the Time Brothers podcast. We are bringing you a full sermon preached this morning down in the city of Burley, Idaho. It is about the prayer of a king's kid. God is not uh, distracted. God is not distant. God is a devoted father in heaven, delighted to answer his children's prayer. Tune in today and find out what that looks like and how that breaks down. God bless you. Have a great day. Enjoy the sermon. now we've even on the weekends we've been getting up early i get up at, at uh, four o'clock in the morning for work and now he started to sleep in and i like i just luxuriate in that bed when i'm able to sleep in and so that five o'clock phone call wasn't as welcome as it could have been but i helped him to understand it was five in the morning and he could go back to sleep it would be okay uh, grab your bible go to matthew chapter 7 verse 7 through 11 7 11 like the old convenience store that used to be around these places 7 through 11 matthew chapter 7 Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. For what man is there of you of whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? I'm talking to you about a king's kid's prayer. You and I have the privilege of going to God in prayer. I'm reminded of uh, a man named David Grubbs. He was talking about how uh, he grew up in a, a little town kind of like ours, like, like Burley or maybe like Jerome. And it was one of those places where everybody knew everybody else. And there was, a, there was an ace pawn shop that was on the main street of that town for like 40 years. And this wasn't one of those kind of pawn shops that they're just totally after your money. Uh, they, this pawn shop, they, they would help people out, families out in a time of crisis. They could pawn something, get some money to be able to pay off, uh, you know, pay off some debt that they had, and then they would pay it back. They had a good relationship with the community. Uh, it was owned by uh, Fred and Lydia, and they ran this thing for 40 years. And then finally, Fred dies. Fred dies, and Lydia has got to figure out what she's going to do with the business. The kids don't live there anymore, and so she decides that rather than sell the business... What she decides to do is to close the business down and let anybody who had anything in pawn, in hop, to come and collect it. And so she sent out cards to everybody uh, that had, had items in the store for them to come in and pick it up. And when you would get to the store, he said on the front of the store, it said, Bus this business is closed. Come and claim what is yours. And I thought, man, that's a perfect analogy. A prayer is coming to God and claiming what is yours. I believe that God wants to answer your prayer more than you even want God to answer your prayer. God, God wants you to have rich resource in your life to accomplish his kingdom purposes in your family, in your nation, in your community. And I think sometimes we're under-resourced because we don't understand how prayer works and who God is. I think sometimes we don't pray with this passionate prayer. And this king's kid prayer, the Jews had a saying within their, uh, their, their rabbinic teachings that the man whose prayer is heard by God is a man who raises his hands in prayer and in his hands is his heart. When I come before God in passion, persistently asking him for the things that are needed in my life, that heartfelt, passionate prayer is what moves the heart of God to step into my situation. But I think the reason we don't offer that passionate prayer is we don't understand who our Father is. Coming up on Father's Day next week, one of the things we need to understand is that God's got a Father heart for you. Now, now sometimes we look at God and we think, well, God... 
God is just a distant God that sort of lives somewhere in the corner of the cosmos. And my prayers probably don't even get to the distant God. They don't make it to where he's at. He's too far away. He doesn't really care about what's going on in my life. That's not an accurate biblical picture of God at all. He's not a distant deity. He's a close creator who steps into our lives moment by moment and cares about everything. But the other concept besides the distant this distant God in the corner of the cosmos is this distracted God. This is a God who's very busy moving in the European Union and trying to work things out on the national global scale, and he doesn't have time for the little problems of Gene Kissinger when his water heater goes out and he doesn't know if he has enough money to be able to replace it. God can't really drill down on those kind of details because he's too busy taking care of the big things. So a lot of people see God not as a distant God, but as a distracted God, as a God that's too busy doing something else to, uh, to deal with the details of my life. I want you to understand, if God knows the number of hairs on your head, he's, well, it's getting easier for me, for him to know the number of hairs on my head, and he's letting an awful lot of them turn gray. But if he knows that, and he knows when a sparrow drops out of the air, he also knows every detail about your situation. So he's neither distant, nor is he distracted. He is, however, a third thing. He's devoted. He's a devoted father. He's a devoted father that cares about what's going on in the life of his children. He's going to meet his children's needs. He's not a deadbeat dad that's kind of gone off into some other, other place and is not sending resource back to care for the children that he has birthed and, and is in charge of taking care of. So I can go to God with the assurance that when I bring a passionate, heartfelt prayer to God the Father, he's neither distant or distracted. He is devoted. He loves me and wants to answer my prayer. So here he talks about in this first verse, asking, seeking, and knocking. And these are probably most accurately translated into the English language. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. There's an element of persistence that is in each one of the verbs that's used there that's in the Greek that doesn't carry over nicely into one word into the English. So it would say keep on doing these things. Now, the individual elements of, of, that he describes here, I think, talk about different characteristics of what our prayer life is supposed to look like. The asking involves a humility. So when I'm coming to God to ask him for something I don't have in and of myself, I can't do in and of myself. So I come to God asking him in humility, saying, God, I, I don't know what to do. I don't have the resource for this. I don't know how to fix this, but I'm coming to you asking you to help me. The seeking involves an activity level. At my house, we're always looking for something. My son, Tony, who's an adult, lives on his own. But my wife did his, his taxes, and one of the checks came in for his tax rebate, and he came over. We visited for quite some time, and then I took my bride out to a movie because every once in a while you like to have a date night with your little bride. And so I snuck her away. Tony was still there, and, and she had handed in the check, but somehow the check got lost. They had to tear my bedroom apart to try to find that check. And I mean, they, they stripped my bed because we were kind of sitting in my, my room. They stripped the bed, the bed clothes off. They, they searched the room. They finally found it in my Bible because I, I, my, my grandson, who's a little guy, he's a toddler, he, he took my preaching Bible and was playing with it. And I took it away because little kids can be pretty tough on Bibles. And I like the abuse my Bible gets to be from me, not from somebody else. And so I took it from it without realizing I had scooped up the check underneath the Bible. And I sent it from the, 
on the counter. It was my fault that we were seeking. But my whole family was helping him seek for that check. It involved activity. And when I got home, there was obvious there had been some frenetic activity in my room. It looked rather like a B&E. A breaking and entering had maybe taken place. But then seeking involves an activity level. Uh, asking involves humility. And then knocking, it involves the activity but with a level of persistence that's to it. It's like... It's like, I, I, I need this answer. I need this answer, God. This is important. I need you to hear me. So do you see what kind of, how he's teaching us how to come to him in prayer? And another thing that as you look at this, sometimes we get the idea, you, you guys, uh, have you ever heard your kids talk about somebody leaving them on read? And what they mean is they're, they're texting somebody, but somebody's not texting them back. And so they call it leaving it on read, and it means that they're, they're not responding to whatever petition or conversation you're trying to start. So you send them text after text, message after message, and nothing is coming back. And I think sometimes as Christians, when we don't get an instant answer to our prayer, the tendency is to think that God has left us on read. You know, the God's, God's just letting it kind of blow up his, his, his sort of prayer phone, and he's not going to answer the prayer. Essentially, the God has ghosted us, and he's, he's not going to answer. That's not it at all. In fact, God wants to use that, that, very, um, that very intensity of communication on our part to him to develop a committed relationship with him, to cultivate the disciplines of prayer, and, and to develop that communication that is an expected communication with them. And so God uses the delays in answering prayer to develop us. It's not somehow to, to bum you out. It's not somehow to make you think he doesn't care about you. Instead, it's to develop you. Because what, what I have found in my life is I develop the most when I need something or when I'm going through a hard time. I, if, if, if all my needs are met and I'm not going through a hard time, I rarely grow. Almost never grow. I, I, wish, I wish I could say that even sometimes I grew during those pleasant times. I don't. And, and I, maybe that's just my wicked heart. But in my experience, most people I've talked to have grown exponentially in hard times or in times when they needed something from God. They were more connected to Him. And here's, here's why I think that that matters. <clears throat> how, how one author said it is that prayer is not an activity that I do for God. Prayer is an awareness of God. Let me say that one more time. Prayer is not an activity that I do for God. Prayer is an awareness of God. And God's goal with prayer is that I move into a continual awareness of Him, moment by moment, day by day. And He wants to, that's why the Bible says to pray without ceasing. He's, he's, not saying, he's not saying that we should just necessarily walk around mumbling under our breath. He is saying, though, I should develop an awareness of God in my life, moment by moment, so that if I do experience a need or, or anything in my life, a word of praise, I can instantly take that to God in prayer. Because when I develop this awareness of God, what God is able to do then is he's able to take my misery and turn it into a ministry. He's able to take my mess and turn it into a message. He's able to take my pain and turn it into a platform. He's able to take my chaos and turn it into a crown. He's able to move in those details in my life so that that area of need that's there turns in to a springboard to communicate a good, loving God to a lost, disoriented world that needs to know him. So when we come to God asking for something, we come to God and saying, God, I need something. 
Don't beat around the bush. Ask God for what you need. Jesus earlier in the Sermon on the Mount talks about praying, asking God for daily bread. Just coming to God, say, God, I need help from the tempter. I need, I need daily bread. I, I, I want to praise you and worship you. But there's no, there's no bargaining. Sometimes we think that we've got to make a deal with God. Okay, God, I'll cut a deal with you. I'll give you this if you give me that. That's not how God works. He's, he's not somehow dickering with you over the details of your life. He wants you to come to him, asking him in humility to move in some area in your life. It's because he's the, the kind of God that when you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's also the kind of God who, when you're dumb enough to ask for a stone, won't give you a stone. Because, see, sometimes in our prayers, sometimes our prayers are not answered by God the way we want them to. Is because we're praying for something that would wreck us. Just think about it. How, there's an old country song where the, the country crooner is thanking God for unanswered prayers. And he gives several examples during the verses of the song about times that God had, had un, not answered a prayer, but it was a very good thing that God didn't answer that prayer. Because often as individuals, men and women who have limited understanding or knowledge about how everything fits together, we pray for something that is probably not best for us or for anyone else. And God reserves the right to give me bread when I'm asking for a stone. That's a good God that will do that. Because see, here's the thing. God is far better at answering prayer than we are at giving prayer. So God, God knows exactly how to answer that prayer. That's what I think it means in Romans 8 where it talks about the Holy Spirit making intercession for us. About the groanings and, and those sometimes wordless times that we come to God. Sometimes I go to God, I don't even know how to pray. I mean, much less what to pray. And I'm like, God, and I'm just crying out to God. But the Holy Spirit knows how to make that intelligible to God the Father to accomplish His kingdom purposes in my life. So I'm so thankful that I serve a God that can do that. And it's interesting, the analogy that he gives of his Father. There's this idea, the concept of God's fatherhood over us. And how he takes and gives us what we need instead of, you know, what we want, what we need. So I come to God and I ask for bread, and he says he doesn't give him a stone. What they, the commentators say a couple of things about them. They, they say that the, the, the single one-room houses that they had would have had a, a little basket in the house that would have had, uh, if you would have baked fish or, or uh, baked bread or fried fish, you, you would have maybe put those leftovers in a basket so if a child came up to ask for bread, you wouldn't give them, pull a stone out of the basket because there's these little stones that kind of look like a little loaf of bread. You wouldn't give that to the kid and go, ha ha, eat that. You, know, you wouldn't play some joke on your child. Oh, and then when he's talking about the, the fish and the serpent, sometimes serpents would slither into the house and get into that basket. And he said you wouldn't haul out a serpent and give it to the kid. But I, I think he's probably just using the similarities of, of, of the size and shape of things. Luke, Luke adds another one to this. If you read Luke's version of this, he says, if your son asks an egg, will he give him a scorpion? So there's three of these analogies that are there. And he says, you're not going to give somebody, if you're a father, you're not going to give your kid this fake thing and expect them to be okay with that. It's your job to truly provide, not fake provide. It's God's job to truly provide for us, not fake provide for us. And he's not going to mock our prayer life. Now, now the Greeks, the, the world in which this is spoken in, the, the main sort of religious systems of the Greeks and the Romans, the Romans really just ripped off the Greek gods. They're pretty much the same Greek god, Greek pantheon. They just have different names. But the Greeks had Zeus, and 
one of the, the goddesses of the dawn, Aurora, she falls in love with a mortal. And she wants to, she wants to have this mortal, I think Tithius or something is his name, Tithonus, I can't remember. They, they had names I couldn't say. But she falls in love with this guy. And Zeus says, hey, I'll give you whatever you want for your mortal there. What do you want for him? And she says, I want that he not die. Well, Zeus, being the creep that he was, he made it where the guy wouldn't die, but she didn't ask for him to be eternally young. So he gets older and older and older, and his body breaks down. And what, what was intended to be this answer to a prayer to Zeus is this curse because he's got this wicked bent in his nature that he does, not only does he, he gives them this thing, but it ends up being this very destructive thing. I'm glad that God is not like that. I'm glad God doesn't mock my prayer when I come to God with a real need in my life and he doesn't somehow sort of backhand me and give me some kind of thing that would actually be destructive to me. We serve a God that's going to give me good things. So, so God is able to give good and perfect gifts that come down from above from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I can ask or think. So it would be like if I, if I go to God... And I say, God, man, I, I really need a biscuit. He can give me a Cinnabon. You, you guys know what Cinnabon is, right? You've had those, those cinnamon rolls. If you, come in, if you come into a place that sells them, it's so good right after they just baked them, man. The, the cinnamon, the, the, the smell just fills the whole store up. And so if I say, God, could I please have a biscuit? He gives me a Cinnabon. That's pretty cool, man. God, God's like that, right? When, when my, my uh, father-in-law had a, had a burden on his heart to restart the church in Boise, the, the Free Baptist Church that was there, had been shut down for a couple of years. Nobody had been meeting in it. The windows, some of the windows were broken out. The building was in disrepair. And God moved on his heart to go there and restart. We have no, we had no financial support to go and start. I moved with him, and, and we, we, we really were low on funds. We didn't have a lot of money. We bought an old uh, sort of a Wonder Bread truck kind of a thing, you know, an open uh, van truck. It was a beat up old thing. It got us over there to Boise. And we had been praying for a place to stay. God not only gave us a place to stay, he gave us a mobile home. I mean, gave us a mobile home that we lived in, as in the title was given to us. And we stayed there. We started the church. The church grew to averaging over 100. It was uh, God gave us not only what we asked for, but even above what we asked for. And I've had that happen in my life. I mean, earlier in, in my life, when Sandy and I were a younger couple, we were infertile for a dozen years. And we watched people around us having kids after kids after kids. We watched people that were doing drugs and doing the craziest stuff in the world having kids. And my wife would sometimes cry herself to sleep at night because she couldn't have a baby. It was hard for her, man. And, and so we've been praying for, for kids. We have nine kids now. Nine kids that are ours. And we fostered, I don't even, I've lost track of the number of the kids that we fostered. Uh, God answered the prayer, seating abundantly above all that I could ask or think. So, so what I'm saying is, we need to know that God's not like Zeus, the false god of Greece. He's like God, who's a devoted father that lives in heaven, that cares about his kids, and wants to move in their circumstances. Charles Spurgeon had a quote I love because it explains something. I, have you ever heard the, the term dead, dead as the doornail? You wonder where that came from? 
Now Spurgeon told me I didn't know. He's a, he was a preacher in the mid-1800s in London. And back in that day, they didn't have doorbells, but they had these big knockers that are the brass things that you'd pound onto the door. And because he, he had to pound loud enough for people in the house to be able to hear it, because there's no kind of electrical amplification. And so they had a they had a doornail that had a big head on it that was pounded into the door, and you would pound that doornail with the knocker. And it would hit it, and it would reverberate through the house. And he said, the, the, he said the phrase "dead as a doornail" comes from people pounding on that so hard. He said you're going to kill the doornail. You know, it's dead as a doornail, and it just became part of the modern, you know, how, how they would say something. He said this thing is really truly dead, dead as a doornail. And the application he made of that is when you come to God, he said, you need to knock so that it's dead as a door and knock loud so God knows you're persistent. God, I care about this. I'm passionate about this because the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So, But he doesn't say the, 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 the prayer of a passionless man, the prayer of a, of a ho-hum guy. He's talking about passionate prayer to God. One of the things I worry about in, in the, the church in general is kind of the passionlessness of it. It, it seems like when, when people are up even proclaiming the word of God, a, a lot of them, it, it, it's, it's so monotone. And there's this, it's like they, it's sometimes you wonder when you're watching these people that are, you know, these TV men, where do they really believe what they're saying? You know, I mean, they, are you really passionate about that? I think that if you're expressing the living, vibrant, dynamic word of God, you should also be living, vibrant, and dynamic. It, it should flow through. So if I'm talking to the God of the universe in prayer who can move in my situation, it should not be this passionless, pathetic prayer. It should be powerful, personal, persuasive, persistent. I should be storming the throne of heaven. Do you see what I mean? And I wonder if maybe our prayers have not been answered because we... Well, I'll go to this other spot first. Let me go to a verse, uh, a different parable, but has a similar concept. In Luke 11, verses 5 through 8, this is a, a neighbor. This is almost like my 5 o'clock wake-up call, but this is a knock on the door at midnight instead of a phone call at 5 a.m. It says in Luke 11, 5, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend who shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Remember, they don't have refrigeration and the kind of things we have, so they typically got the food for the day that day. So he said, I don't have anything. Can, can you help me? And he says, and, and he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity or his passion or shamelessness, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So this is the idea of somebody that comes to him and he's, now, again, you, when we read something like this, we're thinking of our homes, not their homes. When you go to Israel and you go near the Sea of Galilee, the Capernaum, uh, Capernaum is there. And in Capernaum, you can go through and you can see what they believe was Peter's house. And you, you kind of go up over Peter's house and look down on the, the, the walls that are there that they've excavated. There's no roof on it, so you can look down in it. It's a one-room structure. They lived in one room. It wasn't, this wasn't a, a, a sprawling, a palatial kind of a thing. It was one room. And there was one door in the one-room house 
And what they would do, have you ever gone camping where you're laying side by side kind of like that? And so the picture of the dad on the far side of the house, and this guy comes pounding on the door, and he's got to get up and dance over his kids and his wife to somehow get to the door to answer the door. He said, he's like, no, man, don't do that. You're going you're gonna to wake my whole family. Think about have you ever had somebody wake your little baby up that you just got to sleep? Oh, mercy, you want to hurt them. You know, it's, you, you, you lose the love of the Lord when somebody comes and wakes that little baby up. Because you know you're going to be awake all night long because somebody woke that baby up. And this guy's like, man, go away. I, I, if you wake these guys up, I'm going to kill you. He doesn't say that. But I mean, he, I, go away. You're, you're, you're bugging me. And he's, and he, but he won't stop. The guy outside is pounding on I, I need you to do this for me. And he was shameless in his pounding on the door. And it makes me think that sometimes what we do is we play a game with God called Ding Dong Ditch. Have you ever, you know what that is? It's where you come up and ring somebody's doorbell, then you run and hide. And then they come and open the door and nobody's there. They close the door again, you wait for a while, you come up, you ring the doorbell, you run and you, you dive into a ditch or somewhere and you hide. And you play Ding Dong Ditch. And I wonder if we don't sometimes play Ding Dong Ditch when we're praying to God. And we say, God, I'm going to ask you for this. And then we don't even, we go away. Like he didn't give it to us that very first time. So then we just disappear and we're mad at God. And we don't understand how God doesn't love me. How could he treat me this way? And we storm away and we Ding Dong Ditch God. But this parable is about a guy pounding on the door going, I need your help. And, and now this is not a, this is not this isn't comparing God to this unwilling neighbor. This is a contrast. A lot of the parables are not comparisons. They're contrasts. They're saying, so first of all, this neighbor is asleep. The Bible tells us God never slumbers or sleeps. He doesn't sleep. This neighbor is reluctant to share his resource. God is never reluctant. He's the one that spoke the parable and is telling us to ask, to seek, and to knock. He's the God that wants us to pray to him. To come, so he's not at all like the neighbor. It's a contrast. It's called parabolic contrast. And then, then after that, though, then you have to compare the neighbor to son to to sonship, being a neighbor versus being a son. Um, I have a relationship with God the Father that's very much not not like this neighbor thing, but instead is very much like He's my daddy. In fact, one of the words that we, we would use in the Bible is that Abba, Father. Abba. Um, a friend of mine, Yossi Gabai, he worked in a meatpacking plant that I worked in in Sublimity, Oregon. And he had, lived, he had grown up in a kibbutz in Israel his entire life. He grew up on one of these places. And I, I went over to visit with him at his house one time. And when I came in, his little two-year-old daughter came screeching around the corner when he came in the house. Abba, Abba, Abba. And I thought, man, I know that. He's, she's saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. You know, and, and so I can have a relationship with God, that this, this Abba, Father, Daddy relationship with him, that, that where, where he's not, not just that he's hearing my prayers, but he's close to me. He's connected to me. So he's not this neighbor that's reluctant. He's this father that, that I don't have to somehow bend God's arm in prayer to meet my needs, but I come to him persistently, passionately, persuasively, and then God, as he sees those things developing in my life, grants that prayer to me. My resources are met, but my relational connection is strengthened and improved as well. Does, does that make sense to you? Um, and some verses about prayer. There, there's, this isn't the only passage about prayer that indicates that we can go to God. In James 4, 2, it says, You have not because you ask not. Uh, John R. Rice, an evangelist with the Independent Baptist uh, 
He, he used to say in his, his book, Prayer, Asking and Receiving from God, and I looked for the exact quote. I, I couldn't find it because I wanted to read it to you. But he, he said that in his mind, he sort of saw a massive warehouse in heaven. And in his mind, this angel kind of walks him through this warehouse of all these amazing things that are in it. And after he's gone through it a while, he says, well, what are these things to this angel in his mind? And he said, these are the things that people didn't ask for. My children didn't ask for, but I wanted them to have. God wants you to have what you need. Come and claim your stuff. Come and take what God needs to have resource to you in your situation. And then another passage in 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. He's saying, God hears you and he answers you. And he'll give you what you need. And then in Ephesians 3.20, one that I mentioned earlier, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then in Philippians 4.19, it says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Asking, asking is about expectation. Seeking is about effort. Knocking is about endurance. He wants me to have expectation, effort, and endurance is a hallmark of my prayer to him. There was, there was a, a grandpa that he had, you know, some, it, it, when, you, when your parents and your kids ask for money, you, you kind of want them to learn sort of resilience on their own and maybe to earn it. When you're a grandparent, you're kind of a little more giving with the money. And so, so he, he, had, he had a quarter that he put into his hand and he told his granddaughter that if you, if you can find a quarter, I'll give it to you. And so she, she picks a hand and, and, and the granddaughter's like, well, no, show me which hand. You, know, you didn't pick that. So she picks a hand. And then, then he, she says, well, open it. He goes, no, you open it. So she sort of peels back his fingers one at a time, and he lets her peel them back. And, and there's nothing in it. So then she picks the other hand, and he holds it out. She says, open it. No, no, you, you pick it. So she, she takes his fingers and peels them back. And then between his, between his index finger and his thumb, there's a quarter, and he gives it to her. Now, and the question is, why does the grandpa make the daughter go through the frawly roll of all that? Why not just hand her the quarter? Does he just want her to learn to obey and follow instructions? Does he want, does he want her to, to experience an exercise in trust? No, really, he just wants a relationship with his granddaughter. You know, and, and she's holding his hand. You know what I mean? There's connection that's there. And so when I come to God and I ask God for something, and maybe he doesn't give it to me the first time, the second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time that I come, but ultimately I, I, I get what I need from God, but he's had these many connections with me to, to strengthen my relationship with him, to teach me wisdom, to develop me. So that's, that's, that's not accidental, that's intentional on the part of God to develop me. I still get what I need, but I also develop that close connection with my creator who's, who's like a father to me. Listen to what one, one man said. He wrote a poem about this, about prayer. Sometimes we get, we get so busy that we just don't have time to pray, we say. And the old, the old preachers, they had a saying, the seven days without prayer makes one weak. And they spelled it W-E-A-K, not W-E-E-K. It makes you weak as in not strong, not just that you spend a week, W-E-E-K, without prayer. But here's what, uh, here's a poem. Uh, so I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Troubles just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wonder? And he answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly tried it. 
My child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I called to the Lord for his reason, and he said you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning, and I paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I do pray that you would help us to develop our prayer life to you. Lord, so often we have not because we ask not. We have not because we ding-dong ditched you. We have not because we have treated you as a distant, a distracted deity when instead you're a devoted, loving Father in heaven that wants to give good gifts to us. Thank you that you give us bread and not stones. Thank you that you give us fish and not serpents. Thank you that you give us eggs and not scorpions. Thank you for knowing exactly what we need and when we need it. Be with us this week. Help us to increase our prayer to you that we would be praying King's Kids prayers where our hearts are lifted up in our hands as we ask you for these petitions. We just pray that you'd be with us now as we close in a song. In Jesus' name. Oh. 